Well, happy Mother's Day to you, especially mothers amongst us, grandmothers amongst us, great-grandmothers and all other. We are very glad that you're here and we're very glad to rejoice with you in this special day of the year. It's a great and important day for us to celebrate because it places the priority where we should place the priorities in the importance of family relationships over things like possessions and achievements. It's the importance of celebrating the sacrifice, the love of mothers. It's a very difficult day upon which for preachers and for congregations because we've got to talk in generalities and ideals on a subject over which there is deep personal feelings and an almost infinite variety of differences and individual circumstances. Please remember, I am talking in generalities. Your particular situation may be different to the normal and so your choices could be quite different to the ones I'm talking of and yet they might be the right ones for you in your situation. On the other hand, maybe they weren't the right decisions and in the light of what I'm saying, you will revise the decisions you've made. But I don't want you to think that I have your situation in mind when I'm speaking. I'm only speaking in generalisations. If you want to talk over your particular situation, well, we'll need to do that privately. So, seeing it's going to be slightly difficult, let's especially remember to turn to God in prayer for help. Let's ask. Heavenly Father, we do pray you'd help us now. Help me to speak the truth. Help us to listen with discernment. Take from us, Father, the evil one's desire to harden our hearts, make us soft to your word. Help us to think through the implications of your word for our lives, that we may have confidence of living the way you would want us to live, that we might have understanding of the nature of the life that you have given to us, that we might make wise and right decisions Father, this is such an important subject for us all. We do pray for your help in our listening together today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, while Mother's Day is an important day to celebrate, it's also a day of sadness and heartache for many people. Sometimes for those who have wanted children but not able to have them. Sometimes for those of us whose mother has died, especially recently or in this last 12 months. Sometimes sad because we didn't actually have a good relationship with our mother. Sometimes sad because, well, we had to give up our children for adoption or we were ourselves adopted and didn't know our mother. Sometimes sad because of miscarriages and stillbirths or unwanted pregnancies or abortions. There are many, many reasons why Mother's Day, rather than being the joyous day, is for people a day of quite considerable pain. There are so many different stories that inevitably I'm going to tread on some people's feelings as I speak about what God says for motherhood and how I see it implied in our society today. For in so many ways we've failed to live up to God's standards God's creation, 
God's way of life. I read this morning of motherhood being described as losing a leg and winning the lottery simultaneously. It captures what my first heading has, the joy and pain of motherhood. There are few joys greater than holding your own little one, cuddling into you, looking up into your face as if you're the only person in the world and as if you're the only reality that they know and can trust. Or those moments when they finally fall asleep in your arms and when you lower them into the cot or bassinet and gaze at their beautiful little face, relaxed and at peace, deep in the loveliness of sleep. And yet, there's no greater pain than seeing them hurt or seeing others hurt them or seeing them hurt themselves seeing them walking away into foolishness, rejecting every sensible thing that you've taught them and making a hash of their life and their health. The proverb says, a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Nobody can bring quite such pain to a mother as a child in their teenage rebellion or in their adult rejection. Just as nobody can bring such joy to a mother as a child in their teenage accomplishments and in their their adult achievements. And there's no turning back from motherhood. There's no demothering program, no de-daughtering or de-sunning program. In, in the Facebook world, you can unfriend somebody, but in the motherhood world, you can't unchild anybody. That's not an option. Last week, we started a new series of studies in Genesis 1 to 11, listening to the Bible's challenge to a dead world. So that's why we go back to Genesis and listen to God's purpose for mothers in this world. It started with Genesis 1, and you find it on page 6 of our books. Rather than doing Bibles, we've just given out printed here, page 6. In chapter 1 of page 6, where it speaks in verse 27 of Genesis 1, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. We'll come back to this passage many times in the coming weeks as we discuss our humanity, as we work out our relationship with God and our relationship with each other and our relationship with our world. But today, notice four things. One, God made one man, one humanity. God created him. Secondly, humanity is made up of male and female. God created them. He just goes from one to the other in the same verse, verse 27. For male and female are equally human. Third, male and female are both blessed by God. God blessed them. 
at the beginning of verse 28. And fourthly, God's blessing, God's creation blessing and command is to be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. God's plan was for one humanity to fill the earth, multiplying by reproduction and so remaining one humanity. He didn't create loads of humanities. He created one humanity. This comes from our creation as male and female. And it's reinforced in Genesis chapter 2, where God creates a helper for the man who will leave, lead him to leave his parents. God placed the man in charge of the garden and created for him the ultimate helper, drawn from him and not, for, and not foreign to him, because there is one humanity, a helper with whom he can create a family. Notice how the passage finishes. It's the Genesis 2 passage in verse 23, down the little poem at the bottom of page 6 and to the top of page 7. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. She wasn't created as a gardener, but as a wife. A wife with whom he could establish a family a new family that would take precedence even over his own birth family. A man shall leave his father and mother. That's not referring to Adam and Eve, of course, because Adam and Eve didn't have fathers and mothers. That's one of the characteristics of Adam and Eve. That's how we'll recognise them when we see them in heaven, because they don't have a navel. I mean... These are the unique people who don't have what this passage is talking about for us right here. But they are setting and God is setting what the whole reason of creation is for. United in one ever-growing reproductive humanity. It's the very reason for being male and female, of being men and women, of being husband and wife, of being the same and yet different. And then we come to the very sad chapter 3 on judgment and salvation where we see disunity and death, where hostility and warfare is created within creation, the snake against the woman, the woman's seed against the snake, pain in childbearing, the conflict between husband and wife and the conflict between the man and the earth. But notice in particular... Chapter 3, verse 16 there. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. You'll notice the weekly sheet from the dean, which you're going to read later, not now, is this week from the dean's wife. just thought there'd be a little variation in life. For Helen wrote for us a very helpful little article some years ago about this verse, and as I couldn't improve on it, I just edited it. 
And what it tells out for us is spelling out that pain is more than just the delivery ward. The pain actually is the whole reproductive process. The many sorrows that face a woman, men, that's really important that we understand what it is that our wife in particular goes through in life. From the sadness of infertility to the horror of the stillbirth, from the anguish of miscarriage to the hardship of single motherhood. This is what it is to live in the world of death. This is what God spoke of when he promised death to those who would eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. For us, this life is, is quantitatively normal. It's the only life we know. But we know it's qualitatively abnormal. It's a world dominated by death when it shouldn't be. And in particular, you know that. For in the most life-giving moment of all, a mother giving birth to a child... There's something wrong. There's some strange horror of pain and of suffering and of danger and of death. So let's look at mothering in a dead world. For in the birth of a child, in the nursing and caring for a child, we some have, have some of the most exquisite joys in life. There's a bond of love between mother and babe that ties two people together in a joy that can never be adequately explained. A bond that goes on for the rest of life and even beyond life as we remember our mothers, as we grieve over their death, as we give thanks to God for them. A bond that goes on beyond the next generation as the image of one woman with her babe affects her not only that child as it grows to adulthood, but the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren. But joy as it may be, the pain in mothering, the sadness, the sorrow, the difficulty, the cost, the inconvenience, seems far too great for our generation to bear. Indeed, our godless society is turning away from motherhood. Instead of supporting, encouraging and helping mothers with their great mission of life, our society is undervaluing and undermining them in their task. And this particularly is the result of turning from God. I can even demonstrate it to you statistically. The Australian Bureau of Statistics has published reports on a whole host of stuff, but amongst their reports it says 44% of women who profess no religion have no children. 29% of women who do profess religion have no children. The people who are against children and against family life are the people who are against God. It is God who has created us to have children and to live in family. Reject God and in due time you will reject God's way of life for us as well. And that is statistically being able to be demonstrated now in our society. 
Let me outline for you four ways of seeing this rejection of motherhood, this rejection in giving life, this embracing of death that are so common in our society. Firstly, there's the rejection of the maternal role of women seen in the struggle on the issues of biology and society and the individual. For while the homosexuals are telling us that biology is destiny, the feminists are telling us that biology is not destiny. I wish they'd get their act together. Gender, they say, is a social concept, not a biological destiny. Society has placed it upon women to perceive themselves as wives and mothers. Patriarchal society in particular has imposed domesticity upon women. But there's no reason for a woman to follow that path. She can enter any path she wishes to and we must encourage her to be it politics or the army, medicine or teaching, business or the law, whatever career and profession she wants. Being a middle class movement, feminism of course, is very keen on upwardly moving careers and paths. Chris, could you get me some water please? The the individual should determine what she wants to be and not have her biology or her society define or restrict her choices. Given a choice between being the prime minister or a mother, any girl should be free to make the choice, which would obviously be to be the prime minister. Now, some of these right of women to choose as they wish to do is a right that we would agree with. But feminism always went much further than the rights of choice. Simone de Beauvoir, the great mother of feminism, she wrote, no woman should be authorised to stay at home to raise her children. Women should not have that choice. Precisely because if there was such a choice, too many women would make it. And that would force women in a certain direction. Feminism may talk of, you have the choice to do as you wish, but it is not the choice that feminism believes in. You can choose any direction in life except motherhood. The one for which God creates us. Professor James Tooley, in his book on the miseducation of women, writes, The 1970 feminists like Germaine Greer and Betty Friedan, who so pushed, I'm not quoting him, who so pushed women into careerism that motherhood took second place, if it got a look in at all. The consequence is an educational system that has been taken over by the feminist agenda so that with the legal anti-discrimination empowerment of the feminists, it has made teaching against motherhood mandatory in our educational systems. But by the end of the 20th century, these same feminists, Germaine Greer, Betty Friedan, they'd changed their mind. Germaine Greer has distinguished between egalitarian feminists, equality feminists, and liberation feminists. She says the Quality feminists, they believe that the best thing for a girl is to become like a man. She's against that now. 
liberation feminists is the best thing for a girl is to be able to choose whatever she wants to be, which may include femininity as a thing to have. And in fact, that's as valuable, if not more valuable, than a man. So the woman who in 1971, Germaine Greer, spoke of childbearing as constricting, suffocating than the enemy of liberated woman's larger hopes. In 2000, wrote, I was desperate for a baby and have the medical bills to prove it. The very woman who turned a whole generation against motherhood privately for years was seeking motherhood. And Betty Friedan wrote, our daughters, much later of course, our daughters in the compulsion and challenge of their new career choices are surprised when the power of that other choice now, to be or not to be motherhood, hits them with an agonising indecision. They discover it as some blessed possibility that we kept from them and were too blighted or perverted to appreciate. They were perverted. They perverted creation when they spoke against motherhood, raised a movement against motherhood, changed the curriculum of our education system to be against motherhood. You can read about the dilemma now confronting women in their late 30s, early 40s, as they cannot have the children that they've finally discovered that they wanted to have. Virginia Hassiger, the ABC commentator, wrote a couple of stark articles a year or two ago. If success means a career and no children, women have been duped, she writes. Great theory, but feminism left us in a fix, she writes. For lying behind feminism has always been materialism. For the choice that women are being encouraged to make is the choice of making money, is the choice of career development and success with its travel and its possessions and its freedoms. It's the choice of financial advancement and personal satisfaction in the work context. A few weeks ago I saw a cartoon in one of our papers of a couple facing the dreadful decision. The woman held in one hand a baby and in the other hand a piggy bank. There is the choice. Repeatedly we are told how much it costs to raise a children, a child. Not so much in the direct costs of raising a child, but in the indirect costs, the opportunity costs, as the economists call it, of your foregone salary. Here we are, one of the richest nations in the world living at a time of the greatest wealth that humanity has ever experienced and we cannot afford to have children. There's something profoundly absurd in this. We do not feel we can afford to have a child. We would prefer to redefine our lives by the marketplace than ever expand our families and our lives by our children. And so what we now have is people depreciating parenthood. This is what is euphemistically called the work-life balance, working out that what place 
I will give to others, especially my children, and what place I will just give to myself. In reality, it should be called, why can't I have it all in balance? Raising children has been portrayed for a generation as boring drudgery, shackled to their sleep routine, if they have such a thing, endlessly attending to their eating and to their cleaning. No more freedom to travel the world, to be in important meetings, to dress nicely for work, to get compliments from important people, to engage in interesting projects and intellectually stimulating conversations. No more living for myself and my interests. There is this other being, this unreasonable, unreasoning person who demands everything from me and helps me with nothing. The governments have bought in on it. They are trying to get us all into the workforce. And so they are trying to get the women, in the mothers into the workforce as quickly after childbirth as possible. They want all mothers to return to the workforce when their last child is eight. Just as they want all of us to work into our old age. In fact, it would be good if we dropped dead at the office. We won't have any problems with superannuation schemes or pensions if we just all hang on in there till the very last minute. The feminist crusade is no longer for abortion rights. They believe they have them. But for universal, high-quality, cheap, if not free, child care. That is the the, the great golden calf. Is it we want children into childcare because it's the best for the children? Manifestly not. It has nothing to do with what is best for the children and everything to do with the sovereignty of the mother's career, of her wealth, of her pleasure and of her prosperity. Ultimately, what they want is a high-paid, well-qualified childcare professional had a ratio of no more than one carer for three children, about the size of a family. But we don't have those. In other words, the government will raise our children with professionally trained carers, replacing mothers and mothering. That is the end point of the logic of their argument. For it's not just depreciating parenthood, it's also depreciating motherhood. For as soon as we have children, we are to warehouse them into childcare. The act of mothering a child is considered something to outsource like everything else in life. And if the baby's continued contact with its source of nourishment, food, love, intimacy, touching... It's as if it's not critically important in developing the psychological well-being and health of the child. Anybody could do it. No, dear mothers, only you can do it. There is this absurdity. No society could afford to have for every family a live-in nanny to look after the child so that mothers do not have to. In fact, on this scheme, it would be better if these live-in nannies were all wet nurses. At least they could create and maintain the intimacy bond with the baby. 
while the other mother goes out to work. Mind you, it's always a conundrum to me as to how the professional nanny is a professional, but the woman staying at home looking after her own child is not doing any work. To help the bonding process of babies and infants, high-quality carers will, must work longer than 40 hours a week. Otherwise, they'll be breaking the bonding and the affection of the child. Being there at the most critical times of the child is not between nine and five. It's when the child is sick. And when the child is sick is determined by the child, not by the mother, not by anybody else. It happens when it happens that a child needs its carer. And carers can't change jobs, for that will only create insecurity in the infant. You have to keep on having the same child, the same carer, looking after the child for several years. It's an absurdity to think that we're able to create a childcare system that in any way is going to match the quality of the family life and of the mother in her sacrifice. And it's an absurdity to think that one woman being paid to do the job that the same job the other woman is not being paid to do is somehow a professional. It's saying you're only worthwhile if you're paid for it. That is the only thing with value. However, when we look into the scriptures to go back to the word of God, when we look into the scriptures, we see mothering in God's kingdom. Firstly, as in Genesis, because God's creation plan involved it. Sexual differentiation, motherhood, is part of God's plan for humanity. God has created us male and female that we may fill the earth that we may multiply as one humanity God created the woman to help the man in this very way I'm not saying that every woman must have a baby but it's not the least surprising that so many women want to have children and so many infertile women spend so much time and money in the desperate attempt to have a child the feminist solution doesn't work. It's bad for babies, especially those that are aborted, and it's bad for women. I'm not saying that a, having a baby is the beginning and end of all that is a woman, but it's not unrelated to the very nature of women. It needs to be part of our educational curriculum, for it is so much part of an adult woman's life. I'm saying that gender is not a social construct, nor a simple biological fact. It's more than that. It's God's given plan for creation and for his creatures. No wonder that freedom can find having persuaded a generation of younger women not to be involved in childcare and mothering, that they are so unhappy and miserable that she has to struggle with it. And they discovered, as she says, motherhood as some blessed possibility we kept from them 
or we were too blighted or perverted to appreciate. Those 70s feminists were too perverted and blighted to appreciate God's plan. God's plan is our creation. It's who we are as beings, as bodies, as creatures. I'm not saying that a mother may never work or never have a child in childcare or should never gain into gainful employment, I should say, because no one works much harder than a mother. There are so many variations in life. There are so many unique situations in this family or that. There are so many... There's the, you have to make your choices in the circumstances of life in which you find yourself. There's many a woman who's gone out to work for no other reason than the welfare of her children. But I am raising for you the challenge of our priorities... And I'm raising a little voice against the pressures and values of our godless society. And I'm trying to encourage the women who see being a mother as their life's work to know that there are some who love you, value and who cheer you on because you're doing a good thing and a right thing and a valuable thing and we are glad that you are doing it. And I'm trying to give voice to those whose policies are universal Universal, so I'm not giving voice to them, I'm giving voice against those whose policies are universally admired in the media, promoted in the government and enforced in our education system by the very equality feminists who themselves have chosen not to have children and are imposing that upon everybody else. But there's more to motherhood than creation. For God's salvation plan also involved motherhood. The fall in sin and judgment is the explanation for the intensity of our pain and suffering that women experience through childbearing. But in the Genesis passage, it's also the promise is that through the mother, salvation is going to come to the world. It's through the birth of her seed that the conqueror will come. So in Genesis 3, in the passage there, we read as God speaks to the serpent and he says to the serpent, his promise is, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And when her first son Abel was born, Eve cried with joy. But Abel wasn't the saviour. She had to wait many thousands of years before that son of the woman was born, the child of Mary, who would conquer Satan. It's through the birth of Jesus, the man of Nazareth of Galilee, that salvation came to the world through his birth and through his death. And notice, for notice how he will suffer in the conflict as Simeon foretold in our New Testament reading, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, he said to Mary. For one day, that mother stood there at a distance watching her firstborn son crucified in all its barbaric cruelty. 
And all this she had to bear so that through her son we can find forgiveness of sins. We can find forgiveness for whatever failure we as parents have and which parent hasn't got failures. Failures as mothers and fathers, failure as children in honouring our parents. Whatever our failures, they can be brought to that cross where that woman's son died for us. And as the forgiven people, we can then start to live as he would want us to live, in conformity with our creation, rather than in this blighted perversity against our creation, which in terms of mothers would involve priority and prayer and painful joy. For it's right to make the children our priority Having them and raising them is the very mandate of our lives. It's hard work. It's sacrificial work. And that's why I'm glad we have a day in which we can say, well done, we're thankful to you, and we can thank God for our own mother and praise and encourage you who are mothers now. For even, through, even though we know the pain and the boring drudgery and all the rest, it is to be our priority for we are not to live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again, and for other people. And no one is forced to live for other people quite so much as the mother of small children. That means it's a life of prayer. Prayer for our children. Do not stop praying for your children and your children's children. For it means a life of painful sacrifice in raising our children. It means a life of untold joy and pleasure in bringing a new person, tiny little person, dependent upon you for everything, into adulthood. It's a massive job. There's no other job that's quite so long and massive and intense. My brothers and sisters, we must do all we can to help and encourage and cheer on those who take this undertaking that they may indeed live to the praise and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as they raise their children to live to the praise and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ.